The cops shot an unarmed member of a discriminated group in a poor part of town. Protesters gathered outside the police station. A riot spread through the city. Symbols of the wealthy establishment and leading political party were attacked. Policies were changed and some things improved, but not nearly enough. And decades later, resentment still simmers. If race riots against police brutality sound like the United States in 2020, well, Israel was there back in 1959. Israel was an extraordinary success story in building a nation, as we've seen. In the midst of an existential war for survival and profound economic hardship, the Jewish state ingathered hundreds of thousands of Jews from all corners of the globe. They often shared neither language, culture, education levels, national history, a true smashing together of people from all walks of life many of them traumatized from recent events of extreme violence and persecution. By any accounting, Israel by the 1960s had achieved miraculous things. Still, let's not pretend that once everyone was gathered on in, everything was fine. I said at the beginning of this season that if security is the number one theme in Israeli history, the second one was the challenge of integrating the Mizrahi Jews into society. On the one hand, a lot of progress had been made. But on the other, the Mizrahi still lagged behind the Ashkenazi on every metric, from access to housing and education to political representation. Frustration and resentment boiled over at the turn of the decade. It led to many changes, but not enough. That's today's episode. I'm Jason Harris, and this is Jew on a Know. <laughs> I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. There's an irony to Zionism. It tried to save the Jews of Europe, but ended up saving the Jews of the Middle East and North Africa. By the time Israel was established in 1948, most of Europe's Jews had been murdered in the Holocaust. Those millions had been the intended population of the future Jewish homeland. Zionism was predominantly a European Jewish movement for those European Jews. When Theodor Herzl and other Zionist leaders imagined the future Jewish state, they imagined the kind of country that European Jews would be comfortable living in. Tel Aviv was meant to be the Hebrew version of Vienna on the Mediterranean. The early pioneers of Zionism, who established the settlements in Kibbutzim and small villages throughout Palestine, they were almost entirely European Jews. The leaders of the Yeshuv, the Jewish community in Palestine before Israel, they were also almost entirely European. And so the institutions they built reflected a European perspective in values, culture, and ways of doing things. So Zionism was flawed. It hardly considered the situation, needs, or future of the Jews who had never left the Middle East, including around 25,000 Jews already living in Palestine. Those Jews had their own historical experiences separate from Europe, their own cultures, language, Jewish traditions, and rituals. They had suffered persecution at the hands of Muslim states, but their experiences were largely overlooked by the Eurocentric focus of the Zionist movement and its leaders. But then Israel was established. And over the next decade or so, a million Jews who had been living in the Middle East and North Africa found themselves pushed out. The Mizrahi, as they were called, had had various levels of integration in the Arab countries. In some places, they were barely tolerated as second-class citizens. In other places, they played a bigger role, especially in those cities where they were a large demographic, or in places where they had been around for hundreds or even a couple thousand years. But everywhere, they were vulnerable. 
Persecution increased as Arab nationalism grew as a movement in the late 1800s and early 1900s. The Farhud massacre in Baghdad, Iraq, in 1941 left hundreds of Jews dead in an anti-Semitic explosion of violence. So it's not like their problems in the Middle East began with Israel or even Zionism. Because of persecution, Mizrahi Jews have been leaving the Middle East since around the time that Zionist pioneers were making their way to Palestine from Europe, like around the late 1880s. Their experience wasn't much connected with Zionism at all, and few Mizrahi identified with Zionism either. That was a European Jewish movement. Yet the establishment of Israel in 1948 pretty much tanked their fortunes once and for all, and tied the Mizrahi forever to Zionism. Israel's creation led to oppression across the whole region, as Jews were blamed for the success of their co-religionists in Palestine. Especially once the Arab states failed to crush Israel in 1948, revenge was taken against their Jewish populations. Now it can feel strange to lump Jews from a dozen different countries into one big group called the Mizrahi. But on the other hand, their expulsion from the Arab countries was really part of one big moment, and in that they share in both the experience of expulsion and its impact on their lives in Israel. The point is this, once Israel was created, the Jewish state was looking at a truly astounding influx of around 850,000 refugees from the Middle East and North Africa. Immigrants as a whole overwhelmed the new nation's systems, from housing to schools to healthcare. But what also happened is that Israel split into two Jewish states, the Ashkenazi one for the Jews from Europe and the Mizrahi one, who were looked down upon as backward cousins and suffered accordingly. It sounds like I'm splitting hairs, but it's not quite correct to say that this was a racial problem. It wasn't the color of their skin that Ashkenazi Jews resented and their Mizrahi cousins. It was a kind of cultural discrimination. A textbook from 1964 sums up the sentiment well, and in this day and age it's kind of hard to read. The textbook describes the quote-unquote first Israel of Ashkenazi Jews. The text says, Most of them were self-reliant people who liked experiments, new ideas, most of them had a good, modern education and new Hebrew. They were mostly young, strong, and ambitious, able to adjust quickly to new ways of life. The text went on that European Jews were able to use modern machines and understood science, that they were cultured and well-read, that they wanted the best schools for their children, that women were considered equal to men, and that they adhered to democracy, and that they had built the state's farming villages, labor federations, schools, and army, Everything, writes the text, described in this book. And then the textbook describes the quote-unquote second Israel that arrived after the state was created. Many dark-skinned Jews wear oriental clothes, speak strange languages, and observe Judaism with strange rituals and customs, the text writes. Many were used to primitive houses, furniture, and sanitation, and believed in demons, spells, magic talismans. In religion, they were strictly orthodox. Orientals do not usually like or understand religious change. The book goes on to claim that these Oriental Jews don't know how to organize to improve their situation, didn't know Zionism or Hebrew or literature or culture or world affairs. They were uneducated and illiterate, came from places where child marriage was acceptable, couldn't use modern technology, didn't know democracy or modern economics, and were generally lazy. Yikes. 
This attitude was pervasive in Israel after independence, even though the huge influx of Mizrahi meant that Israel's population was rapidly becoming more Middle Eastern. By the way, Mizrahi Jews were often referred to as Arab Jews or Orientals, terms which we today consider pejorative, so we stick with the term Mizrahi. Now, Israel's population doubled in the three years after its establishment, so being an immigrant of any sort was tough going, no doubt. But it was especially rough on the Mizrahi. And it's another irony. The state of Israel was obsessed with absorbing and integrating immigrants from wherever they came. It's not like the Ashkenazi didn't want the Mizrahi coming to Israel. They very much did. It wasn't so much an attitude of, go back to where you came from. But as I said, they didn't really know these people and tended to look down on them. And so you would get all these conflicts in a society where the establishment was Ashkenazi heavy. In factories, the workers would be Mizrahi, but the managers Ashkenazi. In shops, the owner was Ashkenazi, the customers were Mizrahi. On the kibbutz, Ashkenazi were the permanent residents, Mizrahi were the day laborers. The leading politicians were all Ashkenazi and dominated the political parties in power. In the army, although everyone served, the officer corps was heavily Ashkenazi, while the Mizrahi remained in the lowest ranks. You get the idea. Israel was short of everything in the austere years of the 1950s, and in all those things, the Mizrahi Jews tended to get the short shrift. Israel set up temporary immigrant camps called Ma'abarot, which I talked about in episode 80 on housing. These were barely even good enough to be called slums, and the vast majority of their residents in the 1950s were the Mizrahi, as the Ashkenazi Jews, with all the right connections, tended to get the better housing in the cities and villages. Rinse and repeat when it came to access to good schools and quality health care. As the Ma'abarot camps were shut down, the residents were shuffled to what were called development towns in some far-flung corners of the country. Life there was much improved, for sure, but the development towns still experienced much higher rates of poverty, crime, disease, and a lack of education than the predominantly Ashkenazi places of the country. As with all things, lack of political clout played a big role as the left-wing political parties were overwhelmingly dominated by the Ashkenazi. It wasn't unusual for Israeli cabinet meetings to descend into Yiddish. Now, I don't want to be too dour. There's no doubt that Mizrahi Jews were better off in Israel than as persecuted minorities in Arab countries. It certainly is true that Ashkenazi and Mizrahi Jews had very different cultures and traditions and experiences and values, and this would be a challenge no matter how hard the state tried to integrate anywhere. Still, the austerity of the 1950s was especially hard on the Mizrahi. And in the rough neighborhood of Wadi Salib, that decade of frustration and resentment burst wide open and led Israel towards a new path in the 1960s. Wadi Salib is an old neighborhood in downtown Haifa. For almost 300 years, it was populated by Arabs, Christian and Muslim. The neighborhood remained Arab even as Jews began settling in and expanding the city in the early 20th century. During the Palestinian civil war between Jews and Arabs in 1947 and 1948, the Arab residents of Wadi Salib fled, becoming Palestinian refugees. Almost none were allowed back after the war. Instead, Israel used the neighborhood to house mostly Holocaust refugees in the late 1940s. 
In the early 1950s, as the survivors moved to other parts of the country, Mizrahi Jews, mostly from Morocco, were settled in the neighborhood. But it was never fixed up by the government and suffered from neglect, a lack of services, and overcrowding. Unemployment was high, poverty rampant, crime commonplace. It's hard to say exactly what happened on the night of July 9th, 1959. It was centered around a local Moroccan Jew named Yaakov Al-Karif, who was drunk. Some say it started at a bar where he was behaving badly and the police were called. Outside in the street, drunk and agitated, he began arguing with the police and may have thrown empty beer bottles at them. However it happened, the police ended up shooting and wounding him. An officer was dragged out of his car by the crowd that had gathered. Hundreds followed El Karif and the officers to the local police station, where a rumor began that he had died. Now the rumor wasn't true, he was alive, but quickly hundreds of locals gathered outside the police station to demonstrate against the cops. Soon things turned violent. Rocks were thrown, cars were set on fire, the protesters blocked roads leading to the wealthier Ashkenazi neighborhoods of Haifa and surrounded a theater in which the Mapai party was holding an election rally. Mapai was the left-wing party running the government, David Ben-Gurion's party. Dozens were arrested and several police and protesters were injured. Wadi Salib was in even worse shape after the riots than before. What started as a protest against this act of police brutality in Haifa quickly became a nationwide demonstration against Mizrahi discrimination. Within two days, the protests had spread to cities and towns with sizable Mizrahi populations. Although it was organic, it had a loose leadership, most importantly a Moroccan Jewish resident of Wadi Salib named David Ben Harouche. A former soldier and cop himself, he was trying to run a small cafe in Haifa and was sick and tired of facing prejudice from his fellow Jews. He too was arrested during the riots and spent months in jail. But he also became an articulate spokesman for the grievances of his Moroccan community and the wider Mizrahi population. He spoke to the frustration with all the things we've been talking about. How Mizrahi Jews were treated as second-class citizens, always the last to get chosen even for the worst jobs, the worst housing, the least of the government services. The Ashkenazi didn't see them as equal citizens, but as backwards culture that needed to be reformed into Ashkenazi Europeanism. It was more than a riot or even a protest. It was Israel's first social justice movement for change. David Ben-Gurion's government was reluctant to see the events of Wadi Salib as more than, at best, a simple protest, or at worst, outright Moroccan criminality. According to Israeli historian Tom Segev, this view was shared by a substantial portion of the country and the media. For the most part, Ben-Gurion's ministers, all Ashkenazi Jews of course, seemed to have dismissed the riots as a political protest against their Mapai party, and thought that the police had acted appropriately. Still, given that it was all front-page news, a government inquiry was established, headed by a Supreme Court justice. The commission quickly concluded that the problem wasn't discrimination, but instead difficulty with integrating the Mizrahi Jews into Israeli society. While there were isolated incidents of prejudice here and there, it wasn't coming from the government or the state's institutions, said the report. Ben-Gurion agreed with this assessment, complaining, he wrote, about, quote, the members of a primitive ethnic community, unquote. Oy, so much for no official discrimination. 
Still, said the commission, even though the problem wasn't official discrimination, it was the perception of official discrimination, and this had to be addressed by doing a better job of integration. And on this, Ben-Gurion and the government agreed. See, again, this wasn't the kind of racism that said, go back to where you came from. It was more, now that you're here, you need to assimilate to be more like us Ashkenazi. These were fellow Jews, and Israel wanted them in Israel. They just wanted them to assimilate. To whatever extent the Israeli public was upset about the violence of the riots, the events of Wadi Salib as an awareness campaign were effective. It quickly dawned on Ashkenazi Israelis that there were two Israels, and the country was split, like I quoted from a textbook a few minutes ago about First Israel and Second Israel, and that was written in 1964. Across Israeli society, new attention was put into elevating Mizrahi living standards and social integration, even though most were a continuation of trends that had already begun in the 1950s. In the army, the great melting pot of Israeli society, Mizrahi still didn't make up the top brass, but were becoming officers in higher numbers, an important sign of progress. In 1955, an Iraqi Jew, Isaac Nissim, was made the Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel. The Ma'abarot tent camp slums were dismantled starting in the mid-1950s, finally finished in 1963. In their place were what became known as these development towns, places like Arad, Sterot, Mitzpah Ramon, Kiryat Shmona. If you've been to Israel, you've probably been to at least one of these. They were around 85-90% to 90 Mizrahi, vastly better than the tent camps, to be sure, but still plagued by underinvestment, overcrowding, and economic distress. And of course, a still quasi-official segregation that saw the Ashkenazi living in better places. Education was also improved, with more funding and shuffling better teachers into failing schools. Schools which, of course, vastly over-impacted the Mizrahi, who were less literate, graduated less, went on to higher education much less, and overall suffered from less access to quality education. The massive gap began to slowly improve in the 1960s, though still too little. And in politics, while Mizrahi weren't in national leadership positions, they began to make themselves known and successful on the local level. Thanks to the events of Wadi Salib, Ben-Gurion's Mapai party realized it needed to start cultivating Mizrahi voters. In 1963, the party put forward an Iraqi Jew named Eliyahu Navi as mayor of Beersheba, Israel's largest city in the desert. He won. An Iraqi woman named Shoshana Arbeli Almozlino was a rising star on the left and would serve in the Knesset starting in 1966. Slowly but surely, the Mizrahi were gaining political ground. They were especially cultivated by Menachem Begin's right-wing opposition. That effort would pay off big time when the Mizrahi vote helped him get elected as prime minister in 1977. Ironically, again, the plight of the Mizrahi brought Israel an unexpected kind of international recognition. Israel's first Academy Award nomination. True story. In 1964, a comedy came out on Israel named Salah Shabbati. It was the tale of a Mizrahi immigrant named Salah Shabbati, who employed various schemes to try to earn enough money to get his family out of the Ma'abarot camp where they were living. It starred a new Israeli actor named Chaim Topol, who would go on to play Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof and became Israel's most internationally famous actor. 
The film skewered the entire Ashkenazi establishment of Israel, from the kibbutzniks who get in Salah's way to the left-wing government bureaucrats that foil his every plan. It wasn't supposed to be a major cultural moment, of course, but the way it depicted the incredible hardships of Mizrahi life touched a nerve in Israel. It became an instant classic and an important film for the Mizrahi. They found themselves depicted in a way that was endearing, but also accounted for their struggles and humanized their experiences in a way that most of the rest of Israel didn't or refused to encounter. Never mind that Topol, a native-born Israeli, was Ashkenazi. He was so convincing that for decades Mizrahi Jews thought he was Mizrahi. The film got that Oscar nomination for Best Foreign Language Film in 1964, and also won the Golden Globes as Best Foreign Film, with Topol winning a Golden Globe as well. Look, I told you that the integration of the Mizrahi Jews was one of the biggest themes of Israeli history. I hope you believe me now. By 1965, the Ashkenazi and Mizrahi populations had equalized at 50%, a little over a million each. The Mizrahi continued to lag behind the Ashkenazi in every metric, so things were improving. And you could repeat that sentence for every decade up to today. Cultural elitism, even instances of outright racism, remained endemic in Israel. Still, it was getting harder to discriminate in at least one respect. Mizrahi and Ashkenazi started marrying each other and having children of both cultures. Slowly but surely, wrote that 1964 textbook, the two Israels were merging into one. In another generation or two, said the writers, quote, Israel will still be a land of modern education, medical care, farm and factory methods, social security, democracy, freedom. But it will also be a land with an oriental flavor, in family life, food, clothing, home decorations, arts, music, and religion, end quote. Israel was a giant social laboratory. From developing the Negev desert to changing the army and renewing public welfare and education to ensure that the Mizrahi could claim Israel as their home as much as any other Jew. There were a lot of successes, and also not enough of them. Israel still struggled, even up to today, with the dominance of the Ashkenazi. All of which makes for a compelling reflection, and this is perhaps my biggest point. You can look at the history of Israel and say that it was a European project that the Mizrahi Jews joined later, after it was already established in the Middle East. That narrative situates the Ashkenazi Jews, the Jews of European descent, as the main players. But you could also tell the story in a different way. That Israel, a Middle Eastern country, is another chapter in the very long history of the Jews in this part of the world, the Jews who never left the Middle East in the first place. This narrative puts the Mizrahi Jews front and center, with the Ashkenazi only joining later after a centuries-long absence. Now this podcast has tended to tell the first narrative, in which Zionism, and therefore Ashkenazi Jewry, plays the main role. But someday I'll dive into Mizrahi history, and we'll see that there is another way to look at Israel. As a fully Middle Eastern country with thousands of years of Jewish history, and the Jewish people there the whole time. Okay, the closer I get to my 100th episode, the harder time I'm having keeping my thoughts short and sweet. There's so much more to say. But onwards to the 1960s. 
While Israel was building those development towns for the Mizrahi, and as its cities were expanding and a population growing, it became clear that absolutely essential for Israel's existence was a very important thing, water. Israel had plenty up in the north, but not so much in the south. So what are you gonna do? Well, you're gonna dig a canal. But that's going to create conflict with a player I haven't yet talked too much about, Syria. So all that and more, okay, maybe not more, but all that is coming next time. The music today was from the film Salah Shabbati, composed by Yochanan Zarai. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lahit wrote. See you later. Thank you.